Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Having a weak bladder is nothing to be ashamed of. And I'm here to tell you, there is help. Jude supplements are natural, backed by science and approved by doctors. They were co-created with real women and are clinically proven to reduce leaks by 79%. Jude supplements contain a blend of pumpkin seed extract and soy germ extract, two very simple yet highly effective natural ingredients. Are you ready to start your 12-week course? Go to www.wearejude.com and you can receive 10% off with the code thehappyvagina10. That's www.wearejude.com. Are you experiencing repeated vulva vaginal infections? The incredible products at Momotaro Apotheca are here to help. Momotaro Apotheca is a certified organic and cruelty-free care line which gently treats symptoms associated with common issues like yeast infections, bacterial vaginosis, UTIs and more. Their proactive plant-based products are a safe, sustainable solution, not only helping to prevent infections, but also solve acute conditions. Use them every day for itching, inflammation or irritation and let them treat the root of the infection. To find out more, go to www.momotaroapotheca.com. That's www.momotaroapotheca.com. Welcome to The Happy Vagina, a podcast dedicated to celebrating pioneers in the female space who focus on making a difference in women's health, equality and relationships. Each week, we chat to an inspiring human being as they explore the experiences that completely change their outlook, promising not only to educate, but also to entertain and enlighten. And I am absolutely ecstatic, euphoric, orgasmic (laughs) to have as our special guest this week, Gabrielle Blair, who is the author of the recent book, Ejaculate Responsibly. Gabrielle is considered a top expert in creating accessible conversations about hard topics, parenting, engaged and independent kids and creating a home where both parents and kids thrive. She has been praised as a top parenting blogger by the Wall Street Journal, Parents and Better Homes and Gardens, and won the Iris Award for Blog of the Year for her blog, Design Mum. Gabrielle, welcome to the Happy Vagina. I am so glad to be here. Thank you, thank you, thank you for thinking of me. Well, I mean, I feel like you have actually written the book of our generation. And when I say our generation, I don't mean our generation because we're of the same age. I mean the seminal book. I mean, we're already on to Sam and Seaman, but um, (laughs) we are going to come back and talk about Seaman quite a lot. But before we do that, um, with your permission, I do always start the podcast with a really fun, my version of Desert Island Discs. It's Desert Island Vaginas. It's an either or quiz. And you get to choose which of these things you would take on your Desert Island with you. Gabrielle, are you ready? I I think I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, question one, brief or G-string? Brief. I I like a little bit of coverage. I don't like uh, feeling like I'm picking anything out of my my bum the whole <laughs> during the day. <laughs> so it's uncomfortable for you to have something up your crack. I for me it is. And I have, <laughs> I've been I've been told that I'll get used to it, but I'm like I I don't need to get used to it. <laughs> <I'm just laughs> Who told you that? I think it was a dancer. She's like, no, no, it's the best. It's so much more flexible. I'm like, well, I'm not a dancer and I don't need to adjust to that. (laughs) I mean, you do also have six children. Have you, have have you given birth to all of them vaginally? I did. I had six vaginal births. Yes. Do you think that that changed your relationship with pants or knickers at all? Pants as in British pants. 
It could be. I mean, it, I feel like that when I was a kid that we called them granny panties, the big, you know, the big high-waisted panties, and they were not glamorous and not beautiful. And then lately I look at some of the lingerie lines that they're out there and there's some really lovely options from, from lines really aimed at maybe younger people than I, than I am even. So, you know, a beautiful bra and panty set, but it's like a high-waisted panty. And I'm like, Yes, please. That's fantastic. I can't believe that's appealing to me when I grew up with just like, ooh, gross, stay away from granny panties. But now the idea of like a full coverage, easy, like I don't have to think about it. I'm not like moving anywhere is so appealing. And could that be because my anatomy has changed from six babies? It's possible. Maybe. I have some like that. that and I always think of them as my French knickers. And you are, yes. you are currently living I, in France. But I always think true. they're by Beja London and they're all silk and they come up to my belly button. Yes. But they sort of, they're so sassy and sexy. And I yes. always, well, actually, when I was younger, I think that was when I first saw those type of knickers was in, was in France, traveling, traveling through France. Okay, next question. Condom or Femidom? Oh, I've never even tried Femidom, so condom. I feel like I've tried every form of birth control except the Femidom. <laughs> okay. And do you, do, do, do you think Femidom's, given the fact that your book is a, a tribute to <laughs> male ejaculation and the fact that men should be taking more responsibility for their own sexual prowess, ability to impregnate and pleasure, do you think Femidom's are a good idea or not? Um, I, honestly... I, I would have to look up the latest statistics because when I was doing the research for the book, it was clear to me they were just not as accessible, not as affordable, not as convenient, like not as condoms. And so for me, it, it looked like there was no comparison. Although, again, I've never actually tried one, so I can't speak to the physicality of it. Okay, cool. I'm going to do some further research into that. Next okay. question. HRT or au naturel? HRT or au natural. I don't know. Tell me what's HRT. Sorry. HRT. Oh, HRT is hormone replacement therapy. So when one's oh. coming into one's perimenopause or menopause, you may decide to take some extra hormones, the key ones being estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. Perhaps there's a different name for it in America. No, I'm sure that's what it is. I'm just... I haven't looked into it yet. So far, Oh Natural is working for me. I am 48, so I should, this should be on my time, but, but so far I have... I don't know when I'll know, but so far I, I haven't needed to look into it yet. So that's probably why I didn't know what it was. I'm so sorry. I'm embarrassed. But anyway. I, well, no, yeah. I think that's amazing and great and inspiring. And I think that you will know if you need to know. And actually, Adina Porter's on this season. And she, and actually, there's another guest that's coming on who also did consider HRT briefly. And then they found that their mind could actually overcome the experiences. I've just started taking a little bit of HRT and I have to say, especially the testosterone, I'm really enjoying it. Really? Okay. 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 <laughs> yeah. My doctor said to me, um, my doctor said to me, uh, I said, how's my testosterone? She said, it's on the low side, but you know, you don't need support. And she said, do you, do you, do you feel like you need it? And I was like, well, I don't feel like having sex anymore. So yes, please. And she gave it to me. And then lo and behold, I now want to have sex all the time. So. Okay. So that would be, that will be a big signal to me if I'm like, yeah, I just know I'm not interested anymore. I'm like, oh, I'm going to remember HRT. Okay. Okay. Either that or the crazies, which is what I had in the pandemic. I was like, I feel kind of crazy in a new, it was like a whole new level of um, crazy. Like it was kind of like, the sort of crazy that you can get before your period, but on like, on, on sort of super adrenaline. So. Oh my gosh. Okay. I got to watch for that too. The one thing that I think I've experienced. So I was looking at, I was like, I should have probably had a hot flash by now. I was thinking like, what, and I had to look up like, what does it feel like? I don't even know. I've never had anyone tell me about it. Right. And so then I was looking up, I'm like, no, I haven't experienced anything like that. But then I was talking about it on Instagram and someone commented and said, oh, another way a hot flash can manifest is almost like it'll feel almost like a panic attack or something like your heart's racing, whatever. Like, and I'm like, Oh, I have had that. Like I've had, I, I didn't get hot, but I had this other thing where I was like, what is going on? I don't feel like I know enough about perimenopause or menopause because when I go research it, there's just not a lot out there. I mean, there's, there's just not a lot out there. And so, I, so many of the conversations I have with people are, I'm experiencing this thing. Is this perimenopause or is this like the COVID or is this, you know, like, I mean, it could be, or am I just like, aging or, you know, it has something to do with it uh, anyway. So, so the only one I know so is that racing heart thing. 
Yeah. And actually, one of the things that Adina said was that it was when she went to do a job outside of New York, or outside of LA, and she was in the countryside. So maybe the fact that you are currently in, I'm going to say Provence, but I know it's not Provence. You are Normandy. currently in Normandy. Normandy. Maybe because mm-hmm. you're doing the other thing that the listeners should know. If you go and, if you go and follow Gabrielle on Instagram and Twitter as Design Mom, <laughs> uh, Mom, M-O-M, Mom, not Mom, uh, she is also like renovating this, like, it's like, it's quite addictive, her feed, because they're doing up this kind of like old relic of a building. It's 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 amazing. Yeah. Anyway, next question. Yeah. Clitoral or G-spot? Clitoral. Yeah. Very reliable for me. Has always been just very, very reliable. Like I don't feel like I ever have to think about, am I going to have an orgasm or not have an orgasm? I will always have an orgasm. I feel like I know exactly what to do. And my husband knows exactly what to do. Like it's, yeah. Which is, I, which I don't think I understood, um, Lucky I am until having more and more conversations, but I go into sex just with sure knowledge. I'm going to, I'm going to come and that's delightful. Yeah. That's the same for me, I'd say. And sometimes with, with G-spots, which I do have, they don't always complete fully. So anyway, there's some benefits to that. Cause then you can kind of like keep going. It's always <laughs> yeah. a dead end for me. The, yeah. the okay. <laughs> final true. question in the binary happy vagina desert island disc quiz is vegetable or vibrator? Um, vibrator. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to add there. Um, uh, uh, um, yeah. I love a vibrator too, especially of late for some reason. I come and go, you know, it's sort of like I'm, I'm, I go through phases, which I guess is normal, right? It's normal, you know, and it's actually one of the things you've just uh, completed the half vagina quiz. Thank you so much, Gabrielle, for sharing <laughs> your amazingly unshameful information, very personal for our listeners so they can get to know you a bit better. Um, but yes, as I was saying, as I was reading your book and looking up in terms of um, one of the things that you talk about in the book is libido, right? And how there's been very little kind of study into this this ongoing trope that somehow other women have uh, a weaker libido or less sexual desire than men. And of course, there's been no first of all, there's been very little actual interest in female pleasure until our generation. Secondly, there's been no research into it. But also, I think like one of the really beautiful things about starting to understand that through reading work like yours, and just kind of getting to know this area a bit more, it's like, I'm like, oh, okay, so I'm just in a vibrator phase. And I think that I used to kind of think, oh, oh, that's what I do. That's how that happens. And somehow this conversation that we're all in now, which is accepting that we don't know, you know, just deeply accepting that we don't know enough allows expanse. So, Gabrielle, yes, we need to talk about this book that you've written. <laughs> it's called Ejaculate Responsibly. And for anyone who hasn't come across <laughs> you, your work or this seminal text, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to writing it? Is it a direct response to the overturning of Roe v. Wade in America? Or was it something that was already kind of developing? And then you put your foot down on the accelerator to get it out as a manifesto for all of those countries where they are banning abortion? Um, definitely the, the second, the latter. Um, so I first shared the some of the ideas from this book in 2018. It was the fall of 2018. And in the US, um, Brett Kavanaugh, who is a Supreme Supreme Court justice, was being vetted for the Supreme Court. And I was furious as I was watching this. It was just like lots of politicians grandstanding about abortion, about women's rights, you know, asking him if he's going to overturn Roe, and just clearly, clearly performing around this topic of women's bodies and um, women's rights and abortion without understanding the topic at all, without really considering there were like real lives that are at stake here, real lives being affected. And um, it was just making me so, so angry. And I had been toying around with these ideas. I had written some of them down and I decided to share them as a Twitter thread. I don't know if you're on Twitter much, but um, I had started using it and, um, and I hadn't really written much, but had just sort of been observing. And then I decided to write a Twitter thread. And so I shared some of these ideas and Twitter is an unusual place because I've been online openly and publicly since 2006, sharing my work, sharing my writing, and nothing is quite like it as far as reaching a huge audience that is not your normal audience. And this thread that I wrote, which basically put out the theory that men cause all unwanted pregnancies, um, just went went everywhere. It just went crazy. And again, in a way that 
I'd had viral things happen before. I've been online before, but it's just different on Twitter. Um, when it happens on Instagram or something, it's usually like people I know and then people they know. It's like some still somehow connected to me. Twitter's just total strangers. Like it's just like like anyway, it's just very very different. So um, immediately at that time, publishers reached out to see if I wanted to do a book because this had had such impact even as a Twitter thread. And I remember saying in 2018. I don't see it. I it's a book. I've said what I said. I don't see, I don't see the need, but then what happened is, um, people have continued to engage with that Twitter thread for over four years. Like still, I, I could get on right now on Twitter and there would be comments and retweets about that thread. And what happened was I had this really deep education for four years of, where I need to be more clear, where I needed to expand the ideas. I learned a lot more. I talked to a lot more people through um, conversing with people about this thread on Twitter. And that was really where I did so much of my research. I realized there is a book after debating this with people for so many years. And so my agent was actually shopping the book. There was a leak about the Supreme Court ruling that, you know, this was months before it actually happened. They did a leak where they you know, shared what they were going to do with Roe v. Wade. And Agent was actually shopping the book at the time. So that was crazy. Um, and, uh, and, and basically we went with a publisher when we were deciding on a publisher, we went with one that was like willing to turn it around really quickly. Cause normally even once you've sold a book, it's going to be like at least a year, maybe a couple years before it actually comes to market. And it was like, no, we just need to make this immediately. So. And one of the things that I find really interesting about you, about your book and on the topic of abortion is that you're a Mormon. Uh, and as I said, you have six children. And I, I mean, I just, you know, I feel that abortion as a topic has devastatingly in so many countries become a, a weapon Actually, in your country, since Reagan understood that if he didn't become pro-life rather than pro-choice, because that's really what happened. He was pro-choice and then became pro-life so that he could win the election. It's well documented. And I I am pro-choice and I have had an abortion and I feel really sad about it. I am pro-choice. I'm going to keep saying it. But I also trained as a craniopsychotherapist um, after I lost my mom 10 years ago. It was a really amazing treatment. And during that education I learned that actually the egg in a woman's uterus has some intelligence to choose the sperm. I really, really firmly believe that nothing happens in God's world by mistake and that if abortion is available, then that is something that we should be allowed to access and that that is spiritually an okay thing. The thing I love the most about your book is that it is it's getting to the root, literally the root of the issue, because not all days, but some days I regret the fact that I had an abortion. Some days spiritually in terms of my own relationship with my own higher power, I feel really sad about it, Gabrielle. You know, I feel really like I wish I hadn't put myself in that position. And I think I wanted to ask you just as a kind of segue into talking in more detail about the actual evidence, statistics, and theories in your book is how being a Mormon impacted you writing it. Like how your, how, what, what is the Mormon understanding of, of birth and abortion and life and how did it impact you? And do you have any judgment for yourself on it? Like what was your relationship with that? You know? Right. Right. Um, yeah. And I can talk about this all day long. It, it definitely had an impact on me. Um, Mormons are, anti-abortion in the same way Reagan was. They didn't, didn't have strong opinions. And then politically, it became a thing where conservatives uh, anti-abortion and that that was this politically, this, that's what Republicans were and did. And so many Mormons identified with Republicanism that they were, they never questioned it. You know, they never thought about why am I anti-abortion? What does abortion mean to me? They just were anti-abortion. Um, and I should be clear, Mormons are, the, the majority of Mormons are conservative, but there are millions and millions of Mormons. So not everyone is. And I'm certainly not the only um, Democrat, liberal um, Mormon. I'm not at all alone in that. So it definitely, I grew up with just, uh, here's the, the line on abortion, don't do it. 
don't have anything to do with it. Like, no, abortion's no good. When I was in my 20s, I really started researching it for myself. Like, why do I, what is my opinion on this? Um, and really thinking about it from a spiritual point of view, as I was having my own babies, I started, my first baby came at 23. All of my babies were, I want to say like by choice, we would use birth control when I wanted to have a baby, when my husband wanted to have a baby, you know, we'd decide that together, we'd get off birth control. And, um, and I could conceive really easily. And that was, that was really great for us to get to choose when we wanted to have our babies. So this was more on my mind in my twenties as I was experiencing pregnancy for myself and in into my thirties when I was still having babies. But, and I really have come to think of it spiritually a couple of ways. One, Mormonism is on the books against abortion, except it says there are exceptions, maybe for incest, for uh, when the life, when the life of the mother is at risk. I mean, there's there, um, of course, if there's rape, you know, they, there are exceptions. So, so in that sense, Mormons are pro-legal abortion. You have to have legal abortion in order to have those exceptions. So there's that. Um, But then spiritually, Mormons um, don't teach that life begins at conception. In fact, so we have like, we'll, you know, we don't baptize till age eight. Babies are, are considered, you know, up until age eight, you're considered, you're just perfect. You can't really sin. You can't really make mistakes. You're a child. And that's kind of, that's how we teach. So you're not baptized till age eight. And after that, now you're the age of accountability. And we really care about like genealogy and family history. We do all, you know, we track our family trees. We do this research. And if there was someone in our history, in our family history, our family tree, never got a chance to be baptized, we can actually be baptized on their behalf. Like you can, you can do like as a proxy for them. But interestingly, if you have a stillbirth, that baby is not put on your family tree. If you have a miscarriage, that baby's not put on your family tree. In our, in our theology, we do not treat that as a life. Does that make sense? Like we do not put that on the family tree. So of course we might mourn, we, I mean, of course, we might mourn our, our, our miscarriage. We'd certainly mourn a, still, a stillbirth, but we don't put them on the family tree. Based on that, the way I have come to think about abortion, and I don't know if this will be helpful to you or not in your own personal situation. I don't know if you've ever read up on statistics on miscarriage. Like a huge portion of pregnancies are miscarried. So much more than people know. Some people say one in four. Um, sometimes some statistics are higher. Like a lot of, of, there are a lot of miscarriages and sometimes they happen so early. We don't even know it. In fact, people ask me if I've had a miscarriage. I'm like, not that I know of, but I've certainly had those. I'm very late. I'm trying to have a baby. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to conceive. I'm very late and I have a very heavy period eventually. And you're like, was it a miscarriage? Maybe I never tested. So I don't know. And a miscarriage is your body saying, this isn't going to work out for whatever reason, this egg and the sperm, they're not working out. There's something, there's something wrong here. For me, an abortion is just your mind doing the same thing. Your mind is saying, this is not the time to bring a baby to the world. This is, this is, it's a reaction. Just like your body says goodbye. Your, your, your mind says, no one would know better than you. If it's time for you to bring a baby in the world, if you, if there, if mother's instincts exist, and I think they do, then no one but the mother would know better whether it was time to bring a baby to the world. And if it's not time, then, I mean, in my theology, that, that baby, that spirit can have a chance with you in the future or in, an, in, in the next life. You know, like there's, there's, no, um, there's no permanent loss there. There's no, the, the, if, if, that baby, um, if that baby's body was attached to a spirit already, great. I don't know that I even believe that. I, I think this, the spirit would enter the body much closer to, to birth, basically. But uh, that's, again, maybe my own belief. The Mormon church doesn't have doctrine on that. Mormon church doesn't have doctrine on when does the soul enter the body. I just really feel like, hey, if your body, you know, your, your body could reject this pregnancy, but your mind could too, and that's fine. I just think, and especially given what we were just touching on in terms of like going into menopause and whether or not your mind, and there's just so much research going on on the power of the mind to, so if we really deeply believe in this deep power of the mind to have an impact on illness and health and, and, and everything, then surely that is, as you've said, a, you know, a higher choice choosing just to go with what your body may have chosen in that moment. Thank you. There's just such beautiful, beautiful teachings. I'm really pleased I asked. I wasn't going to, and then I just thought I can't not just because I have great faith myself. And it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, and I, you know, again, I'm going to say again, I'm pro-choice, but I struggle with abortion because of, of all the 
but 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 you've just helped me to have a much better understanding and relationship with it. Uh, coming on to your book, uh, I mean, literally, it is as I've said, it's a manifesto. One of the things I love about it is that it's quite short, kind of chapettes, like little chapters that have got very Instagrammable front pages that are really bold statements. And you know, I would say, Gabrielle, that. I find it as a piece of work quite, it's not that it's polarizing, it's that it's radical and extreme. There were some things within it that I thought, oh gosh, that's strong. But I'm aware that it needs to go, that the pendulum needs to swing in order for us to get men to start understanding that they have this deep rooted, fundamental core responsibility in terms of helping women not to need to have abortions, except for in more extreme cases. You know, as I said, each small section, I mean, we could touch on all of it. And I think probably the best thing for me to do is invite you to share with us and the listeners what your top three discoveries were or are or teachings that you learned or that when you look back on it, you're like, those are the three that if we could just get those three into sex education, what would they be? Oh, I love this. You you would give me a heads up about these three. And I actually wrote down three, but they were, they're maybe not exactly what you're looking for. So I'm going to, I'm going to revamp. I, I wrote down sort of three like interesting stories that I had learned, but in doing the, the research for the book, but as far as the three, like, what do I want people to know? Biggest one is that um, ovulation is involuntary. And ejaculation is voluntary, meaning I don't think we have really wrapped our heads around the idea that women cannot control our ovulation, do not get to pick the day, no matter how regular our cycle is, it's um, our ovulation can still happen within like a 10 day window within that regular cycle. Like it is just totally unpredictable. Ejaculation is the opposite. It is always voluntary. Like the man always chooses will he, will he ejaculate or will he not? Like he gets to choose versus again, the woman, she doesn't get to choose when her egg is released. She doesn't get to choose if the egg is released or where it's released. Like she has no choice in any of that. I want people to understand how the, like to really clue into the differences in fertility. So a woman's egg is fertile 12 to 24 hours each month. We often say it's two days because if it's 24 hours and it starts like in an afternoon on a Monday and then ends an afternoon on the Tuesday, that feels like two days, but it's really 12 to 24 hours. And that happens from puberty until menopause. For men, they are fertile 24 hours a day, every day of their life, puberty until death. They are 50 times more fertile than women. And when women take birth control, and I have taken every form or almost every form, as we were discussing earlier, except the femadom. Um, I, I, um, every time, you know, I'm taking a pill every day or every time I get the shot and then go back and get the next shot the few months later, or, you know, or anytime I'm managing that, I'm really managing my partner's fertility, their ever present fertility. I'm not really managing my fertility. I'm only fertile 24, my eggs only fertile 12 to 24 hours. I'm, I'm taking, ingesting a drug daily or I'm ingesting a hormone daily because of their constant fertility. So I also wanted to be really clear, most of the time when you or I have sex or any woman has sex, they cannot get pregnant. Like they, it's just, it's just physically impossible. Most every time they have sex, they cannot get pregnant. Every time a man has sex, every time he can potentially impregnate someone. So I just really want those differences to be so clear so that men really understand the role they play in this. Cause I think a lot of men and maybe most men really don't connect this, the sex act to pregnancy the way they need to, like they know in theory, that's what happens, but they just, they, they don't really um, internalize what that means. Well, no, because the status quo, the standard is for a woman to be on the pill. So the the assumption is that the woman will take care of it. So they haven't been taught that they need to think like that because, you know, I mean, um, um, a man might say to you, well, that's not true that a, that a, that a woman is has involuntary ovulation because we've provided the pill for you, which can stop that involuntary ovulation 
ovulation. But one of the things that you go into in the book is that there is a male pill that has been created, but that the side effects mean that men aren't using it. Well, they, they, they cut the study short. They cut the study off because um, one of the men in the study had experienced serious depression and even suicidal thoughts. And I feel for that man, and that's really awful, but I want to be clear, women also experience depression and, and some leading to suicidal thoughts from women's birth control, which is prescribed for millions uh, as early as age 12 and 13 and, and taken for decades. And we have much more difficult side effects from our birth control. Like you can have liver failure and you can have stroke and you can have all sorts of things. Um, and we don't really hesitate prescribing it for, even though it has far more serious side effects than this, this, um, one, this one study of, 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 of a pill for men. We're going to take a short break. Before we do, I just want to let you know that this podcast is produced by the female-founded production company, Pineapple Audio Production. Pineapple create groundbreaking podcasts from concept through to your headphones at the very highest level of audio. Their international team support independent podcasts like mine, The Happy Vagina, as well as major brands like the BBC and Grazia. And they are super passionate about helping young people into the audio industry. To find out more, go to pineappleaudioproduction.com or check them out on Instagram at pineappleaudioproduction. What would be your second thing, major thing from the book that you either learned through your studies or have put in it? Like what would be, I know it's awful to make you choose, but I just, I mean, you know, this needs to be a 10 hour podcast. <laughs> I've got so many things I want to ask you. But what would be your second? Um, but I think it's good to think about it. Like, you know, if it, like, it, let's say that we could revamp sex education a, a most core and fundamental way. And really, cause really much of the issue for me around this is, is that lack of education and, and cause what you're doing is you're, you're trying to really teach adult men or, or adult women to teach their adult men about these things. That's where your book's going to land. But if we could have, I mean, when Paxton Smith, the valedictorian who spoke out against abortion came on the podcast, she told me that in Texas, uh, they, they teach that the absence, abstinence is, is, is a way, is, is a form of contraception. That's what you should be doing, which is completely insane when your hormones come through age 14 and you just want to get at it. So <laughs> if we could revamp sex education internationally, what would be the second thing that you would feel that young men and women should really be being taught? We know sex education works and we need to focus there. And, and, and part of what we need to talk about is, well, I mean, uh, uh, several things, but um, one of them is really just talking about the realities of pregnancy. Like, I want to say that men who read the book and get through it, it's a short book, as you said, it's not hard to get through, um, really get it. Like, I haven't had any man read the book and then come at me and try and like, tell me I'm wrong for all these reasons. And like, there just hasn't been one. They read it. And they're like, oh, okay. Like, I, I mean, it's, there's what are they going to argue with that men should ejaculate irresponsibly? You know, there's just not a lot they're, they're Like, what are they going to, what are they going to say? So that I really love. And that, and what it shows, what it tells me or what it shows me is that education works. Like the men who've read this book are going into their next sexual experience with a much more responsible attitude. They're thinking about what are they doing to prevent pregnancy? What kind of work are they doing? Um, what, what kind of responsibilities are, are they taking? Are, do, should they schedule an appointment for a vasectomy? Are they comfortable with condoms? Have they learned how to use them? And, and so I want these ideas in the book to be part of our sex ed. Like if, if males grew up thinking, hey, my sperm can cause a lot of damage to someone's life. I mean, like it can create another human being, but it can also you know, people die in pregnancy, that people die in childbirth, they have permanent scarring, like it can, it can, you can get fired from your job, you can lose your family relationships, like it can cause a lot of damage. I got to be really careful with my sperm. If men were taught that from a young age, um, I think they would get it, like that, they would understand that. I think if we taught that the stigma against condoms is just wrong, and I, I can't speak to the, the stigma in every country, but I know in America, it's strong. Like here I grew up, very conservative religion, didn't really think or talk about sex much, didn't really understand it, wasn't, you know, didn't really know what was going on. And I knew men hated condoms. Like, why would I even know that? It was such a part of our culture. It was in our movies, it's in our songs, whatever it was. Clearly I knew that. And 
And it's just nonsense. Like the more research I did for the book, the more I talked to men, the more they could confirm to me, look, you just have to, it just takes some practice. You have to figure out what your size, what material you like. Do you have any allergies? You know, do you have a brand that you like? What, how do you like to use lubrication with your condoms? Once you figure that out, and I, I don't mean it's nothing to figure it out, but it's certainly a lot easier than troubleshooting female birth control options where you have to go back to the doctor each time, et cetera. But um, the, once they figure it out, they really could say condoms with sex, condoms without sex. I'm not going to feel, it's not a big difference for me pleasure-wise at all. And if we could, if we could give that to, to, to young men, if they understood that, that like, I, I think of it like seatbelts. Um, I was, I was 16 as seatbelt laws became a thing in the United States. And it happened state by state as the U S does, you know, like one, you know, I'm sure California was one of the first or New York. And then, you know, the, the other States started. And I remember thinking, and, and 16 was also when I could get a driver's license. So this was certainly on my mind, like the idea of seatbelts and driving. And I remember thinking, well, I would never wear a seatbelt. That's so dumb. They're unnecessary. I didn't grow up with a seatbelt. My parents didn't grow up with a seatbelt. Like who uses seatbelts? <laughs> and almost thinking they were like nerdy or like they were like, I don't know that they were no, like, I get full, it. I totally get it. You know, <laughs> and then, and then these cool kids from the big city came to my little town during spring break and. Um, they wanted to go kind of joyriding. We're going to go drive around town and they would not start the car until we all had our seatbelts, you know, fastened. And, and I had an immediate shift of like, oh, so if the cool kids are going to do it, I guess I'm on board. I want to be a cool think, kid. So do you think that, as you, you've mentioned that you knew before you were even practically sexually active, that condoms were uncomfortable. I mean, I think we have to be honest about this though. Okay. The truth is, is that it does impact. Let's, let's, let's be really, really real about it. Um, it does feel different having sex with a condom on. I don't think it's worth lying about it, but I've never really, what I love about your book is that you present. So it's like, okay, so a man could go to the local drugstore or pharmacy and buy a ton of condoms and try them out either with his partner or on his own and see which ones suit him best and work with them until he gets used to them. And, and, and somehow or other that has become, or that seems to be asking too much when a woman might spend a year, if not more, trying to work out what the right birth control is for her, trying different pills, having the coil, the veneer. And one of the things I really love about your book is that you consistently, because I, I, I your book, I was like, oh my God, I'm a misogynist. Because <laughs> I'm like, that's not true. And then I'm like, oh, she's got a really good point because you, you set up the premise that essentially men are really spoiled, right? I mean, I think one of the things is, is that it comes from my friends who have sons, um, and I'm not going to name any of them, but they love their sons in a way that they don't love their daughters. There is something that happens for a woman, or I've been told by many, many women, that there is a sort of adoration <laughs> that because of the way the son loves the mother back. So it doesn't mean it's better than the love that, uh, that, that a woman might have for a daughter, but it's different because of the, the, the somehow the suction that the young boy gives the mother and the adoration that the young boy gives the mother. So right from the very beginning, I think that there is the potential that we are spoiling men, even outside of the, like I'm, I'm talking about deep rooted love rather than the patriarchal system that we all live within, that somehow other men are spoil and not forced to go away and try the condoms. And the other thing that you talk about in terms of um, protection is vasectomy. And I wanted to talk to you about that because, and we are going to come back to your third point, but I wanted to ask you about it because if I remember correctly, I think that you said the statistic of vasectomies that might lead to a man being infertile was actually 75%. Is that right? Do you remember that statistic? Vasectomies are 99.99% effective. Like a man is infertile if he has a if he has a vasectomy. Is that what you're asking or are you asking for reversals about reversals? Reversals. So there was one thing in your book that just made me think if I was quite a spoiled man who had always had things my way and not been forced and I heard that only 75% of vasectomies, I say only. Okay, so 75% of vasectomies are reversed and everything is fine. Right. So if you, 
of those that are reversed, very few people want them reversed. Very few people want them reversed. For those that decide to get a reversal, 76% are effective, are completely effective within the first three years. And then it goes less, you know, the, the, the statistics drops from there. But, 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 but I also want to say that's kind of old statistics. The new, uh, this is also in the book that the, the better technicians, the better doctors are achieving 99% effectiveness at reversal rate, even if it's 10 years ago. Because also I found the statistic about the, the fact that so few men do get them reversed. If we are basically campaigning and it's one of my favorite posts that I do <laughs> that just says get a vasectomy and it always goes yes. a bit viral. And it's yes. like, but it, this is a different thing. So friends of mine who've had vasectomies, male friends who are in long-term relationships, it's generally because they've had their children and they don't want to have children anymore. What we are now starting to advocate for is you should be using vasectomy as birth control. Now, if I was a man, okay, and you said to me, use a, use a, why don't you just get a vasectomy to have a birth control from your, from like, let's say 21 through to 32. Let's just say, okay, that was what you were going to do. And then you told me that there was a chance that after that period of time, I would no longer be fertile. I don't think I'd do it. No, 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 no. And in fact, I don't think it's, I don't think we're quite there yet. Even if they banked their sperm for like insurance, I don't think we're there yet. When, when every doctor is getting 99% reversals, great. But the thing, the reality is some, some men aren't going to be able to access the best clinics. I mean, we're talking about statistics from Stanford Medical Center, which is a very, very good medical center. There's a, there's a, 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 vasectomy center in Arizona that gets amazing results and they're published results. These are, you know, again, resources are in the book as well, but until every urologist is getting these results, I don't think we really can put it out there, but we are getting better and better results. And if there was a demand, if men were demanding, we want vasectomies and we want them to be 100% reversible whenever we decide to get them reversed, if there was that demand, I think we would get there. I mean, in the same way, if there's a demand for Botox doctors, surprise, suddenly we have all these Botox doctors that did not exist 20 years ago. Um, like, like if there's a demand for this, I think we're going to get there. And I think you can also take, here's the doctor that's achieving the very best results. And let's have that doctor, she, he, whoever it is, teaching the rest of the doctors, you know, like th this is something that could be taught. This is something we can achieve. Okay. We're not there yet though. So would you, would you say again, that that idea and my memes that I put up is another kind of really radical idea that is actually, as you've just said, not quite there yet, but it, it's really important that we continue to say it so that it pushes and forces the conversation out of, uh, birth control being a woman's responsibility. I mean, I say yes, and and not just for those twenty-one to thirty-two year olds. Um, I I think we need to push it because also the men that are done having their kids who haven't had a vasectomy, they should go get a vasectomy. Their wife is still going to be fertile for another who knows, 15, 20 years more. And she's still going to have to deal with birth control. She's still going to have to ingest those hormones, go to the doctor, get a new prescription. It's a huge hassle in the US. I can't speak to anywhere else, but it's a huge hassle in the US to do all this. And there's no need. He can go have this super simple procedure. It takes 15 minutes. Healing is, I mean, I can't, I, I've never had a vasectomy. I've only seen my husband, so I can't speak to it for myself personally. But I have many testimonies testimonials in the book of men saying, this is not a big deal. You should do, totally do this. And I've had, I cannot count how many emails and DMs and messages I've received since the book has come out from women who have had three kids and are in tears because they've wanted their husband to get a vasectomy and didn't feel like they could ask him, felt guilty about asking him, felt guilty about bringing this up. And then they read the book and go, oh, this is, I can absolutely ask him this. This is a, a totally, like, he should totally do this. I shouldn't have to ask him this. He should have brought it up already. Um, and, and I just feel really empowered. And, 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 you know, and they'll write and say, he's got an appointment next month. He's, you know, he's headed to, to the urologist and, you know, coming up soon. And if I can just help these, these women, that's terrific for me, you know? And I, anyway, so I think we, definitely should be pushing and normalizing vasectomy. There's so much stigma around it. Men, you know, the fears aren't really about reversibility. The fears are that they won't be able to get an erection, that they won't be able to um, have an orgasm, you know, that their sex life will be different. And 
honestly, if you can talk to couples where that one has had a vasectomy, more likely you hear that their sex life has improved. You have taken this huge burden off the, the partnership, you know, this huge burden that the woman has been carrying for decades. And you didn't even know she was having to really deal with this burden. You hadn't had to really think about it as a man. And, um, and, and it just, it, it can really, really improve sex lives because this burden is, mm. has been removed. Mm. Uh, you also advocate in the book a great deal, just because we've just touched on it about that birth control should be free. And I just want to plant that, but I do want to move on to, which is, of course it should be free. Of course it should be. It's crazy that it's not, uh, what would be your third favorite? Well, teaching? you're 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 getting ahead of me. Like so. I just I literally was psychic. I was so intrigued. I wasn't gonna say it. I actually wasn't gonna say it because I thought I bet if I say it, she's gonna say that's yeah. my next thing. Well, I'm sorry, Gabrielle. I'm not no, trying to steal your thunder. I look up to you. I, I'm so glad that this is what's coming to your mind when you think of the book. That's perfect. Um, but yeah, look. The, the reality is we know what works. Like if you're someone who cares about reducing abortion and not everyone cares about this, like I, some people are like, no, I'm fine with however number of abortions. Great. I, I'm pro-choice. I'm very pro-choice, but I would like to see abortions reduced. And the reason why is because I found pregnancy very, very difficult and I would not wish it on anyone who didn't want to, you know, desperately be pregnant. And so that's, so if I saw abortions go down, that would mean a lot of women aren't having to experience this very difficult thing that, that I wouldn't wish on them anyway. But, um, so just back to look, we know what works. Education works. We've talked about that. And then free and easily accessible birth control. That's what works. Vasectomies should be free. They should be on every corner. Condoms, which are already the most accessible of any of the birth controls should be just everywhere. There should just be bowls of them uh, you know, every, every, yeah. every shop, I mean, anywhere <laughs> that someone's going to go that they might think about sex, here's condoms, you know, just make it so accessible. And do you think yeah. like, I mean, I love this idea, but do you, what about, where do you sit with, and really we're coming back to this thing about shame, which is kind of what I wanted to speak to you about towards the end of the podcast now is because some people might say to you, well, I don't want my six-year-old to be at Starbucks and see a condom on the side. What would mm -hmm. you say to that person? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would like uh, sex to be much more normalized and a lot less, lot less shame around it. I don't understand who that's helping. It, I don't, I can see who it's hurting. I don't understand who it's helping. Um, I think when we talk about education in the U.S., as you've referred to, there are some states where no sex ed is required. There's 11 states where no sex education is required at all. Um, and in some states, again, they only teach abstinence. I mean, it's just like a, a train wreck as far as, as the consistency goes. But also, it typically happens one time, like in fifth grade, like age 10 or 11, like that's it. It's just so poorly done. It needs to be age-based, but every year there needs to be sex that needs to be part of the curriculum from kindergarten on. So a six-year-old may see a condom and not worry about it. Like, no, like, it, you know, depending on, um, again, what kind of age-based appropriate um, sex ed they've had. But I mean, I got to tell you, I have read this book with my teens. We've read it as a family. They can handle it. I promise they can. And, and we just need to like, there's so much shame around sex. Anyone who's grown up in a, in a conservative community or religion knows how much shame there is around sex, but it's not just those communities. There's just shame around sex across the board. Well, and also, unless we normalize it, unless we deeply, deeply normalize it. And one of the things that touched me in your book hugely was the conversation around slut shaming. Um, one of the things you talk about specifically is, 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 is a woman is kind of irresponsible if she doesn't have contraception condoms in her home when she's taking a partner home with her and then she's a slut if she does. And this kind of conundrum, it's like a, it's like a no win situation for women around. And I, and I do think that if we could normalize sex to the extent that it was just part of a vocabulary and taken out of, because I think that actually organized religion has played a huge part in making sex something that we should be deeply ashamed of. And particularly with women and the kind of Eve, you know, virgin, whore, Mary, right. kind Mary, of Madonna. that are batted, mm -hmm. exactly, that are battered mm -hmm. around about what a woman should be. And I think, you know, it really touched me. I had a bit of a cry because I just feel that I don't know a woman who hasn't had to somehow navigate 
her own feelings around her own sexuality, whether it's that she's being called frigid or a slut or whatever the thing is. And I, and I just feel deeply sad for humanity. But the other thing that actually kind of stemmed out of that part of the book and that part of the conversation was this thing that you said that I want to end on because I want you to make some suggestions about what women can do in this situation if you're okay with that, which is that you touch on the fact that men find it really difficult to have no said to them. So, you know, one of the things that I found as a young woman was I was put under a lot of pressure to have sex and I didn't know how to say no. I didn't know that I could say no. I thought my value was dependent on on that. And I don't have any regrets. This is my life experience. And I feel like it's brought me to where I am today. But for the young people coming through, because, and we've touched on it, that somehow or other men are, are spoiled, bless them, lucky them. Right. <laughs> right. But, but, to, but how, how can we change that rhetoric and that setup where, you know, it's about consent to a certain extent, but what would you be suggesting to women listening to this podcast who feel like if they say, can you wear a condom, they may not be respected for it. Or if they say no to having sex, if the partner doesn't have a condom, what would be your guidance or insights? Oh, I mean, this is just the, the this is one of the hardest parts about being a woman, isn't it? I mean, the, of course, the ideal is communication that, hey, before I go into this sexual situation with this potential partner, before we've taken clothes off, before the passion has ensued, we have a discussion and say, what are we doing? How are we preventing a pregnancy? I'm not going to have a baby. I'm not ready to have a baby. How are we going to prevent a pregnancy? Who's doing what? What are the, what, what's happening here? Um, how are we preventing STIs? There is no female birth control that's good at STI prevention, just condoms, you know, so I don't know you, are we wearing a condom? Or I know you well, but I don't know your sexual history. So are we wearing a condom? Whatever it is, you probably need a condom. Of course, communication would be great. And you should be, again, if there's no shame around this, if it's normalized, you can have this conversation, right? So that's been amazing. And that's what we should be going for. It is really hard to say, hey, just do this. And then have the reality play out where you don't know if he's going to hurt you if you say no. You don't know, like if, if you're physically going to be in danger, you don't know, maybe he'll be like, no problem at all. And go, yeah, of course I was going to wear a condom. You didn't need to even suggest it. I've got a stock of them. Like maybe that was going to happen. Maybe because they, because he's read the book. And so he's like prepared. Maybe you're, maybe he's not going to think less of you, but you're just like so worried because you've internalized how men think of you is your value and how, you know, how good you are at sex or how available you are is your value. I mean, this is messy stuff. Um, all I can say is, your value isn't your sex, your, your, the way you have sex, or if you have sex, certainly not. And, um, I mean, I, I just want people to be able to go into sexual situations because they want to, because they're going to get something out of it that they're happy about that they need and not because of pressure. And I mean, it's, it's, how do you raise your um, daughters and sons to approach it that way? And I wonder if we're getting better at it because I, I feel like you read the statistics of my children's generation and they're having sex later, they're having sex less. And I hope that's because part of that is because they're just communicating about it and they're not going into situations where they're weren't actually interested in having sex, but just felt pressured or maybe they wanted some intimacy, but didn't want to, you know, have actual sex. Maybe they weren't ready yet. Or, um, so maybe we're getting there. Is it something that has to be distilled through education, through our, you know, teaching our children through parenting? Um, I just hope, and I, I just hope any woman knows that if she does feel pressured to have sex and does feel unsafe and makes decisions that she wished she didn't, that I want there to be abortion available to her if she needs it. Because I know the reality is it's easy to say, you just got to talk about it. You just got to like set this aside and, you know, you know, set all this, get this all settled before the sex begins. In reality, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. There's, there's still a lot of pressure on women. There's still a lot of internalized misogyny. There's all sorts of things going on. And I really want women to not feel like they had to have sex and now they, they have to have a baby. Like 
because this man pressured them to have sex. Like that's, that's just horrible. That's just horrible. Mm. And also there's a lot of pressure on men too. I mean, one of the things that came up in my first season, uh, Meg Matthews came on with her daughter, Nares Gallagher. And she told us, you know, she was like 17, 18 at the time when she came on and she was saying, you know, my male friends. And I think my early year sexual experiences, me and my partner, I think we both felt because of peer pressure that we should be doing it. So these conversations I hope will, because I am in favor of the sensitive man and I love your book and I do, and I thoroughly believe in it. And I, and it's got a hundred percent got my, 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 my validation, my verification. But I also know that some of the topics in it, you talk about, um, pregnancy, having no, no social repercussions for men. And I agree with you that they're not forced to pay. Um, that it's very difficult to force a man who, doesn't want to, to pay child support, et cetera. And those things, I get it. But I also believe that men run far deeper than we've allowed them to. And that they actually, many of the men that I know think deeply about, about children, about their children, about the abortions they may have had. And I think that we're doing an injustice to them by not actually deeply respecting their intelligence. And I think that's what I feel like your book offers men. I agree. And I want to be clear. I have six kids. Two of them are sons. I, I'm, I've been married for 27 years, have all sorts of brothers. I'm, you know, I'm as connected to men as I can be as a woman. And I feel like what I'm doing here is saying, men, I know you. You can do better. I know you can. And if you know better, you'll do better. And, and I know that they will. Like, I truly believe that when I say the men that read this book, they have their little moment where they're like, exactly what you're just describing, thinking about at their sexual experiences going, oh, did I cause an unwanted pregnancy? Was I ejaculating irresponsibly? And they're going into their future um, sexual experiences ready to be more responsible. I don't think men are out there trying to be jerks. I think no one has taught them that they need to get used to condoms. No one has taught them that they need to take on some of the work of pregnancy prevention. I, I can't even be mad. I, 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 I handled the birth control in my marriage for all those years and never questioned it. Yeah. You know, like, like until I wrote this book and I was like, wait a minute, why, why are we doing, why does it all have to be on us? Yeah. yeah. And, and so I, I really, I think this is saying, Hey man, I believe in you. I know you can do it. And, and I think the men that read the book understand that they're like, got it. Yeah. This is something I can do. This is not a big ask ejaculating responsibly is not, we're not asking you to sacrifice your sex life. No. We're just asking you to be careful with your sperm. This well, is not also, a big ask. You know, you, you touch on it. It's just about being responsible for yourself as a human being. So you don't say women should have no responsibility. It's just, as we've talked about, swinging the pendulum all the way the other way so that hopefully we can find a center ground where both people enter into the relationship with a level of responsibility for themselves and you know, and for their community. Partner. Yeah. 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 And, and respect for their partner. So they're not going to do anything to put their partner at risk. And by asking men to say, Hey men, I'd like you to take responsibility for your bodies. I'm not saying women, you don't have to take responsibility for yours. No, no, no. Women keep, continue taking responsibility for your bodies, which I think they will. I have no doubt that they will. I'm just asking men to do their part. I'm not asking women to stop. I'm just asking men to do their part. And yes, in an ideal relationship, They're both coming in. They're both going to take responsibility for their own bodies. And they're both coming in with respect for their partner so that they would never put their partner at risk, that the woman wouldn't put the man at risk and the, and the man wouldn't put the woman at risk because we don't do that for people that we love and respect. Mm. Also communication is lubrication. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And and the other thing that I, the other expression I love is that, uh, difficult conversations save relationships. So, uh, Gabrielle, please, would you share with us before we close, uh, what makes your vagina happy today? What makes my vagina happy today? Warm baths, uh, on cold nights with my husband. It makes my vagina very happy today. Oh, I love that. I love that. I hope, I hope, I hope that you stay in France where it's cold for a very long time. <laughs> Keep enjoying those warm baths with your husband. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for writing this book, Gabrielle. Well, thank you. I loved our conversation. Thanks for asking the spirituality questions. I really appreciated that. Thank you. 
That was Gabrielle Blair. I'm Mika Simmons, and this is the Happy Vagina Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please do subscribe, tell your friends about what we're doing, follow us on Instagram at the Happy Vagina, and help us spread the word about equality for women in health, pleasure, and relationships. See you next week. 